Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Well, this week we continue our series, Jesus Goes Global, Confronting the Power Base, with a message titled, Caesar or Christ? So turn in your Bibles to Acts 17, verses 1 to 9, as we join Dr. Newfeld now. To be clear, the New Testament, and particularly the writings of Paul, make it clear that faith in Christ does not set us in opposition to the government of our day. Romans 13 verse 1 commands, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. And then it goes on to explain the rationale behind that statement. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Now two things lie behind that statement. The first is the assurance of the sovereignty of God, and most particularly, the providential oversight over all things. If, as Jesus said, not even one sparrow falls to the ground apart from your heavenly Father, then is it not also true that not one ruler over a nation or an empire comes into power apart from our heavenly Father? He raises up kings and nations, and he also deposes them at his command. And if that's true, not only in the first century when Paul wrote those matters, then it also continues to be true today. Although the office of emperor of Rome is no longer in existence, And in a great many places on earth, the idea of an emperor or a king, well, that's been replaced by a president or a prime minister elected by the population. The principle remains the same, whether it be through war or because of birth or because of election. Whatever way was the pathway to political leadership of a nation, behind all of that stands the meticulous sovereignty of God. There is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. I said two things lie behind that statement. The second principle is that since God has appointed them, it's necessary for the followers of Jesus who bow their will to the will of God that we be found in submission to the rulers wherever that's possible. Romans 13 verse 2 says, Whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. And I say all of those things because the title of today's Bible lesson, Caesar or Christ, And when I pose that as a question, I don't mean to suggest that the growth of the Christian faith should pose a threat to Caesar. And I also pose that question in a contemporary fashion, so that the followers of Jesus should not be accused of fomenting sedition against the governments of their nation. As the church grows, we should be saying to the government, you have nothing to fear of us. For the followers of Jesus are determined, wherever possible, to live in submission to the government of the day. But you will notice that I said, wherever possible. That is, there must never be a doubt among believers that our ultimate loyalty is to Jesus. And furthermore, we know that in the end, all world leaders will stand before Jesus, the ultimate world leader, and those lesser world leaders will give an account to him. There is no doubt about that. We bend the knee to Jesus as Lord. And in those occasions where the state oversteps its legitimate authority, we don't lead mobs in the street in protest, but we do humbly say to authority, please do not overstep your authority. If you do, Christ who is Lord over all will call you to account before his bar of justice. What are examples of that? Well, if the government mandates that we abandon the commands of Christ, They've proven themselves to be rebels to the rightful Lord of the earth. And when Christ, who alone is the supreme Lord, wills it, he will bring the leaders and governments of this world to account before him. 
Now I'm going to come back to that, but for now, let's continue our study of the book of Acts. We've come now to chapter 17, so I'm reading verse 1. And now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. So Paul, Silas, and their young associate, Timothy, have left Philippi. Wonderful success. Church of Jesus has been formed, first one in Europe, and in Greece in particular. It's a victory, but it's come at a cost. They've been charged with advocating customs that are not lawful for Roman citizens to accept. But that charge was false, but mob justice prevailed, and in consequence, Paul and Silas had been severely beaten and placed in stocks. But God had intervened. The city magistrates now offer a formal and public apology. And nevertheless, the wounds of their mistreatment remain. But a church of Jesus also remains in Philippi. And if we fast forward, we know that this church, the one in Philippi, was probably the most problem-free church that Paul had ever planted. And the support this church offered him was a model even to this day, of partnership in the gospel. See, what happened in Philippi was a great victory for the gospel, and again, it came at a price. I mentioned some time back that in order to get from the coast to Philippi, the men would have taken a very well-known road called the Via Ignatia, or in English, the Ignatian Way. Now, that road then carries on inland, and there's no doubt that this would have been the road they traveled, for it went to the most important cities in northern Greece, or what was called in that day Macedonia. Luke says that in order to get to Thessalonica, another leading city, the missionary team had to pass through the cities of Amphipolis and then after that Apollonia. Now each of those two cities are about a day's journey from one another if you travel by horseback. And so to get to Thessalonica on a horse, that would take three days, about 160 kilometers in total. But of course, if the men walked, it would have taken longer. Well, Luke mentions no details of their journey nor how long it took. But for our purposes, given that Paul and Silas had just been beaten by rods, so if they had walked, it would have been a very painful journey indeed. And I have no doubt, given what we learn about Timothy's character, he would have provided all the assistance that was possible. If they had walked, I imagine that Timothy carried the bulk of all that they had. And so think of the journey in that way. But the three men are not defeated stragglers. They're warriors for the good news of Jesus. They are men who are willing to pay the price, and they won't be satisfied with anything but success where they go. And they're on the way to Thessalonica. Immediately we see that Thessalonica, well, in many ways it's different than Philippi. Philippi is an important city, but Thessalonica was the capital of Macedonia. And the Romans had given this city a status of a free city, and as far as we know, it would have been a city of somewhere around 200,000 people, which in that day, well, that was huge. And furthermore, we know that unlike Philippi, in Thessalonica, the Jews had not been driven out. There were many of them. And just so we understand the significance of what was to occur in that city, let's go forward and see what Paul would later write in 1 Thessalonians 1 verse 8. He wrote, for not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. That is, by the time this church was formed, like the church in Philippi, this church would take the mission of Jesus very seriously. They would not only receive the gospel, they'd make sure that other people were being brought to Christ and more churches were being formed. Again, like in Philippi, that would happen and it would be a smashing success. And also, like Philippi, it would come at a price. Notice that Paul and his team are able to do here what they could not do in Philippi. Here, there's a synagogue. 
And Paul never varies from his approach. You know, in Romans 1.16, he would write, For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And since the gospel came from the Jews, well, it's necessary that the gospel would first go to the Jews. And so in obedience to the demands of the gospel, Paul and his team will come to the synagogue. You know, synagogues in that day were always open for well-known rabbis like Paul to come and bring a teaching. And that's where the gospel begins in Thessalonica with the Jews. And just before we read the text, I think it's necessary to note this, not just as a historical fact, not just as a note that the rejection of Jesus by Judaism was profound, but also to notice that in spite of it, Paul's love for the Jews was undiminished. And might I also say that it must be so for all Christians today. Love for the physical descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob must be a part of our identity. We receive the gospel from them, and from them our Savior was born. Well, having said that, let's get back to our text. Paul is aware there's a synagogue in Thessalonica. So Acts 17, 2-4, and Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and rise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. And we have to imagine Paul waiting for an invitation to preach, and that invitation came. Luke describes his preaching style as reasoning from the Scripture. Reasoning, well, that means presenting the evidence, and he's allowing his hearers to examine what he's presenting, and he's allowing them to form their own opinion. Now, that style shows respect for the hearers, and it's winsome. We should also notice that before the leadership of the synagogue turned on Paul, that they actually allowed him to come back, not just once, but on two more occasions. And we have to imagine that Paul was being respectful and that he was engaging. You know, discussions were going everywhere. Did the scriptures really say that the long-expected Messiah would have to suffer? That was the question. That was the discussion. Hi, this is Ben Lowell, CEO of Back to the Bible Canada. You know, I wanted to thank you for your prayers, your gifts, and support towards the calendar year-end financial goal. We're so appreciative to report that the campaign was a ministry success. I can't express enough our gratitude for your generosity. Now, Back to the Bible Canada is well-equipped to begin a new year of sharing the gospel to more people in more ways than ever before. Your gifts allow this Bible teaching program to reach the ears of so many, some growing in faith, others perhaps being introduced for the first time. One listener recently wrote, God knows and cares about the intimate details of our lives, and He is using you to communicate His love and mercy and grace. Please continue to support the ministry in 2023, or even perhaps become a new monthly partner. Just call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. Several things about Paul's activities in Thessalonica are not mentioned by Luke in the book of Acts. You know, first, how did Paul and his missionary team actually support themselves? 
But Paul mentions what happens in 1 Thessalonians 2 verse 9. He says, For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We work night and day that we might not be a burden on any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. And we know that Paul was a tent maker by trade, and immediately he would have set out to make and sell tents right upon entering the city. But we also know that the newly formed Philippian church took it upon themselves to send him help. Philippians 4, 15 and 16. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only, even in Thessalonica. You sent me help for my needs once and again. So even while Paul was a tent maker by trade, and he worked his trade immediately upon entering the city, the Philippian Christians, although just recently in the Lord, they were well aware of how important the Thessalonian visit was. Can you imagine the role that Lydia would have played? So many prayers, so much support, and of course, so much encouragement from hearing of the results. And over those three Saturdays, those three Sabbaths, Paul is faithfully taking the synagogue through the scriptures, taking them from one messianic text to the next, showing them how Jesus fulfills the scripture. And Luke mentions that some in the synagogue were persuaded. He means some were converted. See, having been invited into the process of discovery, reading the sacred text together in dialogue with others, some come to the right conclusion. They're living in the days in which the Messiah, the hope of Israel, has come. And by saying that some were persuaded, Luke does not tell us how many, but it's important to say that he doesn't say they were persuaded or even the majority were persuaded. See, the good news about Jesus doesn't require those things. Rather, it seeks to reach all those who, like Lydia, have their hearts opened to hear and believe. Well, at any rate, not only were some of the Jews persuaded, so were a number of Greeks. Well, who were those Greeks? Well, we have to assume that they were Thessalonian Greeks who had begun to attend the Jewish synagogue who had a keen interest in the God of Israel, but they would not have been converts to Judaism. See, many Greeks, conversion to Judaism was just a bridge too far for them. See, conversion would have demanded that their men be circumcised, that they'd have to adhere to a kosher diet from then on, and that they'd have to separate themselves from the Greek family they had and their friends. And so instead of being converted, they simply maintained an interest in the God of Israel. And many of those Greeks would have been examining the scripture right alongside of their Jewish friends who had come to believe. And then Luke adds, in his characteristic and understated way, and not a few of the prominent women. See, these were Greek women. Now, we've already met Lydia. She's a prominent woman. You know, in those days, it was not uncommon in Greek society for a woman to achieve a prominent status in society. And I would assume that these women were either the wives of leading officials or that, like Lydia, these women had prominent businesses in their own right, and they had achieved leading positions in the society. See, at any rate, in short order, and I suppose for a number of weeks after Paul's sermons in the synagogue, believers were being formed into a group. So we keep reading, Acts 17, verse 5. But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. Now, before we engage ourselves in this uproar, let's set out to understand who the players are. When Luke mentions the Jews, he's not referring to Jews as we tend to refer to Jews today. Luke means quite specifically the Jewish leadership of the synagogue. So why are they jealous? And the answer must be, that in the first century, there's something unique going on in Judaism. 
Many Jews took the idea of Gentile evangelism quite seriously. But as we've already seen, they were to the most part unable to make converts, only God-fearers, because full conversion was more than most Greeks could bear. But the good news of Jesus didn't require circumcision, nor keeping kosher laws. That was welcome news to the Gentiles. And in a short period of time, it was the followers of Jesus that won multitudes of Gentiles, while Judaism, with its legal requirements, well, that proved far too cumbersome to make progress. And that's what happened in Thessalonica. And after a long time of very slow inroads into the Greek world of Thessalonica by the synagogue, then along came Paul and Silas and Timothy, and in a number of weeks, they accomplished what the Jews hadn't done in a lifetime. And what follows is less a matter of an examination of whether or not Jesus is the Messiah. What follows is the coming out of that green monster, that monster called jealousy. Well, next, who's this fellow called Jason? Well, the name is a Greek name, but it's very likely that it was a Greek translation of the name Joshua. And if he's Joshua, then he's a Jew. I think it's likely that Jason allowed Paul and his team to live in his house while they were there. He would have himself been one of the convinced Jews, a convert. He rejoiced at the news that Jesus was the long-awaited Messiah, and he had his sins forgiven. Okay, let's now go to the action. Out of the jealousy, the synagogue leadership decides to form an alliance of all things with the worst elements in Thessalonica. It's hard to imagine how it happened. Every culture has a highly excitable and prejudicial people group among them who are always looking to blame someone for something. And clearly a narrative has now formed and it has something to do with Caesar. Job one, set a mob to attack the house of Jason and from there drag Paul and his team into the streets. So we come to verses six and seven. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also, and Jason has received them, and they're all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying there is another king, Jesus. Now, this charge of turning the world upside down, that charge must have come from Philippi. But there in Philippi, the charge was that the good news of Jesus was an affront to the pagan religion. There the concern, at least as it was stated before the magistrates, is that Paul and his team were advocating illegal customs and undercutting both pagan culture and pagan religion. And of course, we know different. The real issue was that the men who were abusing that young woman had lost their means of making money by her misery. And we also know that the magistrates eventually admitted that they had done wrong. But when you have a mob anywhere, and here in Thessalonica, no one cares about those incidental details. All they care about is that these men are causing chaos, and more so. The mob now takes the charges one step further. They say, these men advocate another king named Jesus. And in this way, they stand against the king whom Rome has set over us. These men are political revolutionaries who want to destroy the Roman Empire. Now, you think about how entirely false, and yet at the same time, you know, there are elements in truth in this. And if you don't know it, one of the reasons that, you know, for instance, in our day, communists in China, you know, began to repress the church again after a period of increased freedom, a lot of that had to do with the fall of communism in Eastern Europe, beginning with the fall of the Berlin Wall in 1989. And it was deemed that Christianity had a great deal to do with the fall of Eastern communism, and it was seen as an anti-communist movement. So let's be clear. True followers of Jesus have always known that discipleship to Jesus transcends our politics. The true church is not, let me repeat this, 
It's not an arm of the capitalistic system or the free market economy. You can be in favor of that, but that's not what the gospel is here to do. It's not to strengthen any country. The gospel is the free proclamation that Jesus alone is Lord. No, not Caesar, not capitalism, not communism, not the East or the West, not anything but Jesus. He is supreme over all, and all will bow to him and eventually will fall under his rule. Now, at the outset, I know that sounds political, but in truth, The good news of Jesus is the glad proclamation that forgiveness of sins can be found by anyone who puts their trust in him. And so the true followers of Jesus were more than ready to be loyal to Caesar, provided that Caesar did not demand a higher loyalty than Christ. And that, my friends, that's always been the Christian message. Look, I myself, I'm a Canadian, and I want to say to my government, I'm going to respect it, and I'm going to work for the good of my country, but I will not bend my knee and entrust my soul to anyone outside of Jesus alone. He alone receives my worship. I will not worship Caesar. I will bless Caesar. So if Caesar is content to be blessed by the followers of Jesus, then he will be blessed. But if Caesar demands that I call him Lord, or any prime minister or president demands that, I will not do so. I have but one Lord, and he is Jesus. And that was the issue at Thessalonica. It's the issue today. Indeed, Christians are always saying, Christ alone is king. It's never Caesar. But we are not revolutionaries. We seek to bless our nation. Verses 8 and 9. And the people of the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. See, at this stage, an uneasy peace exists. Money is taken from Jason, who must pay damages for the riot. Jason is not responsible, but he is required to pay. But it's a small cost, a small cost indeed, for the advance of the gospel. Thanks so much, John. You know, I think historically Christians have been at the the forefront of societal change. Is this a role that we should be continuing? Yeah, the, 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 the question is, you know, I mean, will we Christianize the society? I think that we're ever gonna do that, but we're gonna be salt and light. And uh, the thing about salt, is that in the ancient world, salt was a preservative. It prevented decay. And we need to say that if we can bring the influence of Christ into our culture, it will sustain the culture and men and women will live. Take away the gospel from the culture and allow the culture to operate without Christian influence and the culture will experience loss and suffering. Thanks so much, John. And remember to join us again tomorrow as we continue our series, Jesus Goes Global, Confronting the Power Base, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, Bible teaching you can trust. We live in a fallen world. We're called to live God-honoring, Bible-based lives, but society would seem opposed How are we to illuminate and influence a culture that rejects the truths of Scripture? Well, Back to the Bible Canada has a new resource to help us do just that. 10 Christian Essentials for Cultural Change. It's a new booklet that presents 10 impactful ways we can affect and influence the world around us. Each chapter also contains probing questions to reflect upon and suggestions as to how each of us might integrate these essentials into our daily lives and relationships. Derived from Dr. John Neufeld's audio series and alternative lifestyle, this is a resource designed to engage the reader to make a difference. 
Request your free copy today by calling 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.